Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, we're going to focus on verse 33, but for the sake of context, and you'll see how the context fits in, we're going to read all the way from verse 17 to 34. Uh, you guys might want to take a seat. Thank you. Um, you're not going to sit there long time, do <laughs> So I don't think we sent the memo this morning. Sorry. Uh, last year, I was privileged to preach a few times out uh, to other churches, and two times I was asked to preach on the Lord's Supper. And somewhat, as Jesus said, I long to have that meal with his disciples. I've longed to preach this sermon with you. And so it's a great expectation that, that we come to this text, and I, I trust that we'll be encouraged as we stop and think a bit about this table and what it means and how we ought to approach it this morning. Verse 17, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then and so eat of the bread and the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together, and here's our text, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about other things. I will give direction when I come. Only so far in the reading of God's word may he reform our lives to its truth. Uh, will you pray once more with me? Heavenly Father, as we've just read this passage, would you not through this passage and the explanation of this passage, would you not prepare our hearts for the table? as we come to reflect on and think about and meditate upon all that your Son has done for us, would you not even now cause our minds to be fixed upon you and your Word? Would you not help us to, to see how all of this really has direct implication for us as we think on and reflect upon and live in light of 
your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that Lamb of God who indeed takes away the sins of the world. Would you not help us even this morning to taste and see afresh your goodness because you have taken our sin and you have dealt with it. And so would you not help us, we pray even now, in Christ's name we ask and plead. Amen. Just as instruments go out of tune, let's be honest, our hearts tend to go out of tune as well. Instead of living for the praise and honor of God, we often end up living for the praise and honor of self. I, I know that's true of me. Is it perhaps true of you? Dear friends, we would do well to remember that one of our perpetual problems is what A.W. Tozer called self-sins, self-righteousness, self-interest, self-pity, self-sufficiency, self-admiration, self-love, sins wherein we elevate self before God, over God, and above others. You don't need to look long and far in our world to see that this is the number one sin that is ravaging our world, this elevation of self. Even to the degree that self can redefine gender and, and put itself in the center of all truth. You see, this elevation of self isn't just something that occurs out there, but we need to acknowledge that it occurs in our own hearts. Why do you think it is that Paul exhorts us again and again and again to deny self? We are not to seek our own good, but the good of our neighbor, 1 Corinthians 10, 24. We are no longer to live for ourselves, but Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 15. We are not to insist on our own way, but love others. 1 Corinthians 13.5, we are not to please ourselves, but bear with others, Romans 15.1. And realize Paul here is, is simply reflecting the mind of Christ. Philippians 2.4-5, he says this, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And surely we should know that, that this is the defining mark of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. To, to deny yourself. Mark 8.34 If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This is Christianity 101. For good reason, Calvin said it this way, this is the greatest progress of the Christian life, that we nearly forget ourselves. Now, why draw your attention to, to this idea of denying self? Why address the issue of self when we come around the Lord's table? Because, dear friends, selfishness isn't just an inherent problem in our world and in our hearts. It's a problem that this table seeks to confront. One of the purposes of the Lord's table is to draw us away from self and to draw us to Christ. Reminding us that, that we belong to Him and we belong to one another in Him. See, the Lord's table is a countercultural, God-given means to retune our hearts from self towards our God and towards one another. Unfortunately, because of sin, because of this tendency of selfishness, we quickly lose sight of this. Uh, this is the case in the Corinthian church. If you look at this passage, this is what the church lost sight of. This was the case of this church that was a church divided into groups, groups that exalted themselves over others. Just notice quickly the, the structure of our passage. In verse 17 to 22, we, we see the problem of the Lord's Supper. Namely, that there were these divisions in this church, these factions characterized by selfishness. 
A, a selfishness that was insensitive to the needs of others. People just doing their own thing. And as a result, in, in verse 23 to 26, Paul reminds them of the purpose of the Lord's Supper. And what is that purpose? It's to focus us on Christ. To make Him the most important thing about us. To, to focus on His death, death that unites us together into one body. And in verse 27 to 34, we see the preparation for the Lord's Supper. Namely, in order to rightly celebrate this table, in order to avoid these divisions caused by selfishness, we need to come to this table prepared. How? By examining self and by discerning the body and by, this is the key text we're going to look at this morning, by waiting for one another. That's where our text fits in. Verse 33 is the, is the concluding exhortation of this passage. One scholar says it's the pro pra pra pragmatic solution to the problem of self in the church. And so given the fact that, that we naturally struggle with these self-sins, given that we all in one degree or another fall prey to this, this concluding exhortation, this pragmatic solution applies to us. In, in light of our own sin, in light of our own struggles, our own insensitivities, our own self, we are called, beloved, to wait for one another at this table. To understand this command and to obey this command, I want to ask three questions about this command this morning. The what, the why, and the how question. Firstly, the what question. What does it mean to wait for one another? The answer to that question is simply this. To wait for one another means to wait with devoted expectation. Uh, the Greek word therefore wait uh, literally means to receive from. It has this connotation therefore to, to receive with an expectation. That's how the Greek philosophers understood it. They, they saw the word as meaning to wait and to expect. And so the basic idea behind this word is to wait with an expectation to receive. Uh, that's how the New Testament uses it. Uh, consider a few examples. James 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. See, just as a farmer waits for the crop to reap the crop, so to the believer comes to the table waiting with his expectation to reap blessing from the Lord in this table. Or consider Hebrews 10, 11. For he, Abraham, was looking forward, same word, forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. See, just as Abraham looked forward with expectation to the heavenly city, so to the believer looks forward to God at this table, to meet with the living God. Or consider... 1 Corinthians 16, 11, Paul says, Help him, that is Timothy, on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him, same word, with the brothers. See, just as Paul was waiting with eager expectation for his son in the faith, so too we ought to come to this table with eager expectation. See, that's the idea here. Waiting with eager expectation. But the challenge for us is this, isn't it? How often do we come to the table? How often do we even come to church with this expectation? One of the reasons we leave church and we leave the table without being moved, without our hearts being impressed on by God, one of the reasons for that is, is because we come to this table without expectation. Let's be honest, we often come to this table carelessly, thoughtlessly. We come without looking forward with eager expectation. And surely, beloved, we should come with expectation. After all, isn't this 
the Lord's table? Aren't we coming to meet with the living God? You need to know, when you come to this table, God is present. No, He's not present in the elements. We're not Catholics. We're not Lutherans. No, He's not present in the bread and the cup. But He's present through His Holy Spirit who indwells us. And therefore, we should come with this expectation to meet with God. We should come with this expectation that characterized David. David says this in Psalm 27 verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Know this, at this table you see the beauty of God because you see the provision of God for sinners. To save and to reconcile him. And so therefore come with eager expectation. But note, I mentioned we ought to wait with devoted expectation. Why do I add that word devoted? Look at who we must wait for. We are called to wait for one another. We are called to wait for the brothers and sisters in Christ. As you should know, the, the one another's of the Bible really speaks of our devotion to one another. Namely, that we belong to one another. We belong to one another in, in, as God's household. A household that loves and cares and prays for and shares with one another. The point is this, to wait with expectation isn't impersonal. It isn't just purely individualistic. It's highly personal. It's communal. And why is it like this? Because there is a vested interest here. There is devotion to one another here. Tell me, dear saints, when you drove here this morning, was there an expectant, expectant longing to see one another? When you drove here this morning, was there a desire to see your brothers and sisters in Christ? Was there this, this longing for, for those that you love in the Lord? Okay. When Broden and I moved from Bethany to Hanuidge, can you believe it, more than two years ago now? Can I tell you what the most difficult thing was about that move. It was not seeing those saints on a daily or weekly basis. It was difficult not having regularly seeing those beloved saints. Well, thankfully, you have filled that void, Anuij. Praise God for you. We long to see you every week. Why? Because your family. Your brothers and sisters in Christ. And as family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. There should be a longing for one another. There should be affections for one another. Devoted expectations to see and meet with and fellowship with one another. I'm sad to say, I think sometimes we, we fail to see this. Sometimes we fail to come to church and we fail to come with this devotion. We rush off after the service making sure no one catches us. Or we refuse to join a small group. Or we just isolate ourselves. Dear Christian, if that's you, if that's your habit, then I do wonder, I, I do wonder, perhaps you don't grasp what this is. A church family where there's a one anothering, a, a love and care for one another. And perhaps, perhaps it's the case that you're not even approaching this table rightly. Because you have no concern for one another. See, we come to this table with devoted expectation to meet with our God and to meet with His people. This should be our desire. This should be our prayer even this morning. The next obvious question becomes, however, what are we to expect? If, if there is this devoted expectation, what is the expectation? Or to ask the same question differently, why must we have this devoted expectation? Why wait for one another? Well, the answer, I think, has to be this. 
To wait for one another means to wait for divine enrichment. Now, I'm not a prosperity preacher, so hold on. What do I mean by wait for divine enrichment? What I mean is this. The Lord's table, as Reformed theology teaches, is a means of grace. It's a means through which God sustains and strengthens and comforts His people. In Ephesians, Paul speaks of the fact that we have, there is in Christ the unsearchable riches of Christ, Ephesians 3.8. And he says that in Christ we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing, Ephesians 1.3. May I suggest to you, one way in which we tap into those riches and those blessings is as we receive and enjoy this table. Uh, Charnock, Stephen Charnock said this way, Christ is the storehouse and the fountain of all the treasures of life and peace, but His ordinances are the channel. See, as we come to the table, as we come around the table, as we meet here, we come with devoted expectation for divine enrichment. We, we come here because this table is a table of blessing. It isn't that what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10, 6, and he calls the cup the cup of blessing. We, we even see this in our passage. Did you notice how our passage started and ended? Uh, again, keep your Bible open. Look at verse 17. He says this, but in the following instruction, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Did you see that? This table is not for your judgment, it's, it's for your betterment, your good. Or, or look at verse 34. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Again, this table is for your blessing. The idea seems to be this. It is meant for our good, it's for our blessing. Why do you think Christ ordains it? To build you up. To encourage you, to bless you, not to condemn you. Uh, that's why Matthew Henry calls the Lord's Supper not merely a commemorating ordinance, not merely a confessing ordinance, but he calls it a communicating ordinance. Because at the table, Christ communicates all his benefits to us. Uh, listen to what he says. Your Christ is not only made known to us, but we may contemplate the mysteries of redemption, but Christ is made over to us that we may participate of the benefits of redemption. Uh, this is technically what, technically what Baptists have always believed. Our Baptist forefathers in the 69 Confession says this, that the table is for our spiritual nourishment and growth in Christ. And so, dear Christian, given that this table is a table of blessing, given that this table is ordained for your good, given that this table is for your spiritual nourishment and growth, we need to come to this table with appetite. We come expecting to taste and see the goodness of God. We need to come with a desire for the blessings of God's graces. And realize this table offers the believer abundant blessings, abundant graces. In fact, these blessings have, a, have three tenses to them. Firstly, these blessings have a past tense. These, we are blessed as we remember at this table, past grace. As we come to the table, we remember what God has done for us in His Son. He, Jesus, became our sin. He became our sin-bearing substitute, paying for our sin, taking our place so that we would be saved. See, this is communicated for us in the symbolic elements of this table, the bread and the, the cup. Remember what he said, this is my body which is for you. What does the bread symbolize? It, it symbolizes that the righteous one of God, who knew no sin, became sin for us, was broken so that we would be counted as righteous. 
His body was broken that we would be restored to God. Remember what he said about the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Well, what does the cup symbolize? Well, the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sin. Here at the table we remember that the Son of God, the Lamb of God, shed His blood to wash us clean, to take away our sin, so that we would be forgiven, that we would be accepted. See, at the table we remember past grace, past grace that God has provided you a Savior. A Savior who redeems you from your sin. A Savior who reconciles you to the Father. A Savior who reinstates you as a child of God. And so why should you wait for one another at the stable? Because here we remember past grace that saved us. But, but perhaps you're an unbeliever this morning, and I'm assuming perhaps there are. Know this that before you at this table is the only hope for your soul. You need to know this, dear friend, that you have sinned against God. You have broken His holy law. You need forgiveness. You have broken His statutes, and you have failed to live rightly before Him. Therefore, you stand at this moment unrighteous before God under His judgment and condemnation. And this table ought to be a reminder of you that God has provided a Savior. If you haven't believed in Jesus yet, let me warn you, do not partake of this table yet. If you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, rather let these elements pass you by. The Bible warns you not to partake in an unworthy manner. Instead, let these elements pass you by and think about what this table could mean for you. It could mean that there is a Savior who makes you right. There is a Savior who can wash away all your sins. A Savior who can heal your brokenness. Let this table preach to you in that way and point you to the one your soul needs. And if you, after this, come to realize that you need the Savior, come speak to us. If you're a child this morning, come speak to your parents. Let them tell you about the good news. Because this table is good news of God's love for us. So we remember past grace that saves us. But these blessings also have a, a present tense. We are blessed as we enjoy present grace. When we come to the table, there is, a, there is present grace to be enjoyed. The, the sacrifice of Jesus in the past sustains us in the present. Uh, this is actually communicated not just in the elements, but the actions of this table. Think about Jesus. When he institutes this, he commands you, take and eat. Drink of it, all of you, for this is my body. See, at this table, we not only see these elements, we partake of them, we receive them, we drink them, we consume them. And that communicates that these elements, in a small way, provide sustenance to a body. But in a far greater way, Christ provides spiritual sustenance to our souls. See, they provide present grace. But how exactly do they provide present grace? Uh, here I've been helped by, by John Shower, a Puritan. He said that he pointed out that the table offers present grace because the table strengthens weak grace and helps us grow in grace. Christian, are, are you perhaps here this morning and you're struggling? Or are you perhaps here this morning and, and you're in need of strength? You just feel weak and wayward. You're in need of help. You need grace. Well, then come to this table for sustenance. Are you struggling with weak faith? Are you perhaps doubting your assurance? Are you struggling with your relationship with God? Well, then come to this table and behold the object of your faith. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for sinners. Behold Jesus and his death and be reminded that your standing before God isn't based on the strength of your faith. It's based on the object of your faith. 
Or are you perhaps here this morning and you're struggling to repent of sin? Perhaps you're backslidden. Perhaps you've wandered away from your faith. Perhaps you've lost the closeness and intimacy with your Savior because of your sin. Well, again, come to the table and see the seriousness of sin. Behold how awful sin is. It required the death of the Son of God. Behold then Jesus and his death and be horrified at your sin. Pride, covetousness, lust, hate, anger, jealousy, worldliness. Hate these things, despise them, because that's what put Christ on the cross. Come to this table and resolve to put them to death in your life. Or are you perhaps here this morning and you're struggling with love? You're struggling to love Christ. You're struggling to love others around you. You're struggling to love people in your life. You're struggling to love the church. Or come to the table and look upon the love of God for you. God, while you were still a sinner, gave his son to die for you. Behold Jesus and his death. Here is God's love displayed. Let that love motivate your love. For God and others, love, beloved, love because God has loved you. Or, or perhaps you're struggling to rejoice this morning. You're, you're despondent, you're, you're despairing, you're discouraged. Well, again, come to the table and behold the ends that God has gone to save you. To purchase you, to, to make you his own. Behold Jesus and his death and see the price that God has paid if he gave his son for you. Will he not give you all things? Ask yourself, if he's paid such a high price for you, will he let you go? Will he allow you to wander away and forsake him? Surely not. Did you see how this table is, is meant to provide you with present grace, grace that strengthens you, grace that sustains you? And so, dear Christian, are you broken this morning? Well, come to this table with your brokenness and behold Christ who has broken for you to give you life and hope and strength. John Shower said this, at the table we should go to Christ as the fountain of all grace, in whom all fullness is lodged, and beg that he would not be a sealed fountain to us, but vouchsafe what we need out of his treasure. Why should you wait for one another at this table this morning? Because there's present grace to sustain you. Uh, Psalm 84 verse 7 says, They go about Zion from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Well, the church as the Zion of God, uh, when we come together as the church at the table, we do something like this. There is present grace to help us go from strength to strength. Uh, but, but realize the table offers not only past and present grace, it offers future grace. There's a future tense to these blessings. Look at what Paul says, verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 11. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, when we come to the table, we remember Jesus' sacrifice that has not just secured our past and saved us of our sin, but it secured our future. We should come to this table realizing that this fallen and broken and heartbreaking world is not our home. No, Jesus is coming again to take us home. And so as we partake of this table, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we partake of this table, we are looking forward with appetite for that marriage supper with the Lamb where one day we will rejoice in His presence. One day we will be clothed in pure, spotless garments of righteousness. One day we'll be free of sin and pain and mourning and loss. 
And so again, dear Christian, are you perhaps weary this morning? Are you tired of the brokenness of this world? Come to the, come to the table for the security of tomorrow. Follow the example of Paul in Philippians 3, 13 to 14. He said this, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the great goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Why? Verse 21, Because our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, at the table we remember that our Savior has secured for us our heavenly citizenship, our heavenly inheritance, and therefore now we can have hope. We can have strength. So again, why should you wait for one another at the table? Because here you find future grace to secure you. All in all, as we come to the table, as we wait for one another, we do so expecting divine enrichment. We, we, we do so longing for the blessings that God promises. And so Christian, dear saint of God, come to this table for grace. There is grace here. So far then we've answered the what question. To wait for one another is to wait with divine expectation or devoted expectation We've also asked the why question. To wait for one another means to wait for divine enrichment. We need to move on and conclude by asking another other important question, that is the how question. How must we wait for one another? Uh, the answer is twofold. To wait with one another means to wait with devoted or, or diligent examination. And we see this teased out for us in verse 28 to 29. Paul offers practical instructions of what this looks like in order to avoid partaking in an unworthy manner, in order to avoid sinful and selfish and divisive behavior. Christians must do two things, examine themselves and discern the body. Both of those exhortations answer the how question. Firstly, we must examine ourselves. Verse 28, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. See, in order to come to this table rightly, we need to come to the table with hearts that have been prepared. Hearts that have been examined and tested and prepared. Hearts that are ready to eat and drink. See, this is necessary so that we don't come presumptuously, thoughtlessly, and carelessly. Now, how do you examine yourself? If you go read some of the Puritans and older authors, they'll write you entire catechisms and treatises. Uh, that's a, little, a bit much. Here's two ways. Firstly, examine your faith. Examine your faith. Have you believed in God? This morning, have you trusted in Jesus as that Lamb of God who takes away your sin? Have you rested in His perfect sacrifice? Have you followed Him in obedience and love? as your Lord and Savior. Have you believed? See, without faith, it's impossible to please God, and without faith, you cannot partake of this table. This table is for believers who have recognized the one that, point, that they're pointed to in this table, who've trusted in Jesus. Uh, William Bradshaw illustrated this way. He said, faith is the only mouth with which you feed on Christ at this table. But not just that. Don't just examine your faith. Examine your repentance. Have you repented of your sin? Have you recognized yourself for what you are, a sinner? Have you recognized that, that you have turned away from God, that you've grieved Him over your sin? Have you recognized that you ought to grieve for sin because God hates sin? Have you resolved to put sin to death? To pursue holiness. See, we cannot come to this table, which is all about Jesus' death for sin, and still cling on to our sin. Now, again, William Bradshaw said this way, faith is the mouth that feeds upon Christ at the table, then repentance is the appetite with which we turn from sin and run to for Jesus. Dear saints, what is the state 
of your faith and repentance this morning? Is there a hunger and an appetite for Jesus? Is there faith that delights in Jesus as your Savior? Is there disgust over sin and repentance to flee from it, to despise it? Well, then if you have this sincere faith and this real repentance, then come to this table. Partake of it because it's for you. Notice I said sincere faith and real repentance. I do not say perfect faith, perfect repentance. None of us are perfect here. J.C. Ryle put this way, the grand test of a man's Christianity is not the quantity of grace he has, but whether he has any. And so however weak your faith is, however weak your repentance is, if it's sincere, if it's real, come partake. As you approach the table, pray Psalm 139, verse 23, 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. In other words, show me my sin that I would repent, and show me how I need to walk by faith. And so how must we wait for one another? We, we wait by examining self. We examine self not for the sake of self-esteem, but self-denial. So that we can throw ourselves again at the feet of the cross. But, but secondly, we must examine the church. Verse 29 says this, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and drinks... The body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Uh, that word translated discerning means to judge. It means to evaluate. It means to make a distinction. And it's applied not to the elements, but to the body, the, to, to, to the body of Christ, the church. And so as we come to the table, we need to discern. We need to recognize the church as a distinct people. We aren't just any group of socially diverse people. This isn't a club like you have out in the world. No, we are a distinct people because we belong to Jesus, who as a result belong to one another. Therefore, as you come to the table, don't come focusing just on yourself, actually. No, come recognize and be aware of others. Come giving thanks for one another. Come to, for, to forgive and reconcile with one another. Come sharing your burdens with one another. Come looking out for one another. May I suggest to you as you wait this morning for the elements to come to you, as you wait for the bread that comes this morning, look around. Have a look at those around you. For the guys in the front, that's a bit difficult. But have a look around and recognize one another. Say, there's Marcus. Such an encouragement to me. What a blessed friend in Christ. Oh, 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 oh there's Glenn. We don't really get on. We, we butt, heads, uh, butt heads all the time. But guess what? He's still my brother. I still love him. Oh, 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 there's Sally. What a godly Sunday school teacher. I'm so glad she gets to teach and disciple my kids. Oh, there's Sydney. He's still young. He's still immature. Still wet off behind the ears. But guess what? He's believed on Jesus. It's my job to help him, to encourage him. Now, I don't know of any Marcuses and Glens and Sallys and Sydneys, but I hope you get the point. We're called to look to one another, to discern the body, to see and recognize and rejoice in the people that God has placed around us. Sundays isn't just about hearing a message. It's about seeing God's people and uniting with them and fellowshipping with them. Psalm 48 is a psalm that's all about praising God, praising God for Zion, the beautiful city of God. It says in verse 12 and 13, walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels. In a sense, that's what we do when we discern the body. We walk about Zion, the city of God, and we recognize that all God has built, and we praise Him for it. We praise Him for the people. We praise Him for the brothers and sisters that He's given us. Beloved Church, that's how we ought to come to the table with diligent examination, examining our own hearts, 
in examining the body of Christ. And realize when we do all of this consistently, faithfully, that's how we confront self-sins. That's how we humble ourselves before God. That's how we ought to stand apart from this world. By coming to this table, waiting for one another with devoted expectation and, and divine enrichment, waiting by diligent examination as we do this faithfully, consistently. We tune our hearts away from ourselves and toward our God and towards one another. I've quoted Matthew Henry already, but he's written an excellent treatise on the Lord's Supper. If you're on a reader, I encourage that to your reading. But he points out in that treatise that the Lord's Supper is, by its nature, a, communicate, a commemorating ordinance we remember. It's a confessing ordinance we believe and repent. It's a communicating ordinance we receive but it's also a covenanting ordinance. What does that mean? It means that at the table we come to deny ourselves and give ourselves to Christ and His people. He says this, hereby we resign, surrender, and give up our whole selves, body, soul, spirit, to God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Dear friends, as we come to the table this morning, may that be our prayer to deny ourselves and to give ourselves again to God, to commit to live for Him, for His glory, and for the good of His people around us. May that be our desire. As we come to the table, allow me to quickly pray for us. And I want to pray echoing a prayer by Henry Law, and I trust this sets us ready for the table. And as we pray, may this be our amen. But let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we accept our thanksgiving for the means of grace which your mercy has provided. They are the joy and strength of our souls. We see in them your loving purpose. It is your will that we would have spiritual life flourish and abound within us. And so help us by your Holy Spirit to use them all duly, doubtfully, gratefully to your praise and exceeding profit. Today, we should especially magnify your grace for the ordinance of the body and blood of a beloved Savior. Truly, your word is fulfilled that you have prepared for your people a bountiful feast. We confess that we are utterly unworthy to gather even the crumbs under your table, yet how unworthy then are we to sit down as guests at this heavenly table? We come not trusting ourselves, but wholly relying on the merits of your dear Son, hiding all our unworthiness beneath the robes of His glorious righteousness. We hear the tender invitation. We marvel at the wondrous grace. We cannot hesitate. In faith and love we come. Give us a gracious welcome. Refresh, strengthen us with grace bountiful. We draw near to behold marvelous things by your Spirit, enliven our faith, rightly to discern, duly to appreciate, spiritually to apprehend. Thus, may we richly grow in grace. We reverently look. Bread is broken, wine is poured forth. Write deeply on our heart the precious meaning. Jesus is set forth, crucified before us. In the body, in the broken bread, we spiritually see his broken body. In the poured out wine, we spiritually see his shedding of blood. And while we humbly gaze, may we anxiously ponder, why, blessed Jesus, why did you die? May the precious answer sound through our very heart and soul. I die that you may not die. I lay down my life to purchase your life. I present myself as a sin offering to remove your sin. My blood thus streams to wash out all your guilt. The fountain is thus open in my sight to cleanse you from all impurity. I thus endure your curse. I thus pay your debt. I thus rescue you from all condemnation. I thus satisfy divine justice for you. See in these elements my body given unto the shame and suffering of the cross for you. Heavenly Father, we know that this table is ordained to exhibit these precious truths. May we tightly grasp the breadth and length 
of the glorious purpose that you have in them. May our faith expound and strengthen and grow mightily. May all fears and doubts be slain. May the light of assurance pervade us. May we truly believe that a full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice has been given. May we glory more and more in Christ, our everlasting salvation. But we are called to draw nearer yet. We hear the voice of our great Lord, eat, drink, yes, drink abundantly, O beloved. And so we gladly come forward to obey, we extend the hand, we take the bread, we receive the cup, we eat, we drink. And thus we humbly testify before all heaven and earth that we do personally, ourselves, gladly, in faith, take Jesus as our Lord to be the life, the strength, the nourishment, the joy, and the delight of our souls. We confess that we feed on Him and Him crucified as all our hope, salvation, and desire. Blessed Jesus, at your table, may all these benefits of your cross and passion, may all the glories of your accomplished redemption be sealed to our souls. We do all that your ordinance prescribes in remembrance of you. We remember your eternal love. We remember your boundless grace. We remember your infinite compassion. We remember your agony, your bloody sweat. We remember all that you have done for us. We remember your call to this most hallowed ordinance, and we pray that you will remember us. As we participate, may we truly feel that we are one with you and you one with us. As the outward element nourishes our body, may your indwelling presence invigorate and bless our souls. Thus we feed until we hunger no more. We look to the day when you, the Lamb in the midst of the throne, shall feed us and lead us unto living fountains of water. Your answer, amen. Amen.